Chapter Sixteen of Son of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Son of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Sixteen. To Miriam in her new home, the days passed quickly. At first, she was all anxiety to be off into the jungle searching for her Korak. Buana, as she insisted upon calling her benefactor dissuaded her from making the attempt at once by dispatching a headman with a party of blacks to Kovudu's village with instructions to learn from the old savage how he came into possession of the white girl, and as much of her antecedents as might be called from the black chieftain. Buana particularly charged his headman with the duty of questioning Kovudu relative to the strange character whom the girl called Korak and of searching for the ape-man if he found the slightest evidence upon which to ground a belief in the existence of such an individual. Buana was more than fully convinced that Korak was a creature of the girl's disordered imagination. He believed that the terrors and hardships she had undergone during captivity among the blacks, and her frightful experience with the two Swedes, had unbalanced her mind, but as the days passed and he became better acquainted with her, and able to observe her under the ordinary conditions of the quiet of his African home, he was forced to admit that her strange tale puzzled him not a little, for there was no other evidence whatever that Miriam was not in full possession of her normal faculties. The white man's wife, whom Miriam had christened My Dear, from having first heard her thus addressed by Buana, took not only a deep interest in the little jungle waif because of her forlorn and friendless state, but grew to love her as well for her sunny disposition and natural charm of temperament. And Miriam, similarly impressed by little attributes in the gentle, cultured woman, reciprocated the other's regard and affection. And so the days flew by while Miriam waited the return of the headman and his party from the country of Kovudu. They were short days, for into them were crowded many hours of insidious instruction of the unlettered girl by the lonely woman. She commenced at once to teach the girl English, without forcing it upon her as a task. She varied the instruction with lessons in sewing and deportment, nor once did she let Miriam guess that it was not all play. Nor was this difficult, since the girl was avid to learn. Then there were pretty dresses to be made to take the place of the single leopard skin, and in this she found the child as responsive and enthusiastic as any civilized miss of her acquaintance. A month passed before the headman returned, a month that had transformed the savage half-naked little Tarmangani into a daintily frocked girl of at least outward civilization. Miriam had progressed rapidly with the intricacies of the English language, for Buana and my dear had persistently refused to speak Arabic from the time they had decided that Miriam must learn English, which had been a day or two after her introduction into their home. The report of the headman plunged Miriam into a period of despondency, for he had found the village of Kovudu deserted nor, search as he would, could he discover a single native anywhere in the vicinity. For some time he had camped near the village, spending the days in a systematic search of the environs for traces of Miriam's Korak. But in this quest, too, had he failed. He had seen neither apes nor ape-man. 
Miriam at first insisted upon setting forth herself in search of Korak, but Bwana prevailed upon her to wait. He would go himself, he assured her, as soon as he could find the time, and at last Miriam consented to abide by his wishes. But it was months before she ceased to mourn almost hourly for her Korak. My dear grieved with the grieving girl, and did her best to comfort and cheer her. She told her that if Korak lived he would find her, but all the time she believed that Korak had never existed beyond the child's dreams. She planned amusements to distract Miriam's attention from her sorrow, and she instituted a well-designed campaign to impress upon the child the desirability of civilized life and customs. Nor was this difficult, as she was soon to learn, for it rapidly became evident that beneath the uncouth savagery of the girl was a bedrock of innate refinement a nicety of taste, and predilection that quite equaled that of her instructor. My dear was delighted. She was lonely and childless, and so she lavished upon this little stranger all the mother love that would have gone to her own had she had one. The result was that by the end of the first year none might have guessed that Miriam ever had existed beyond the lap of culture and luxury. She was sixteen now, though she easily might have passed for nineteen, and she was very good to look upon, with her black hair and her tanned skin, and all the freshness and purity of health and innocence. Yet she still nursed her secret sorrow, though she no longer mentioned it to my dear. Scarce an hour passed that did not bring its recollection of Korak, and its poignant yearning to see him again. Miriam spoke English fluently now, and read and wrote it as well. One day my dear spoke jokingly to her in French, and to her surprise Miriam replied in the same tongue, slowly, it is true, and haltingly, but none the less in excellent French, such, though, as a little child might use. Thereafter they spoke a little French each day, and my dear often marveled that the girl learned this language with a facility that was at times almost uncanny. At first Miriam had puckered her narrow, arched little eyebrows, as though trying to force recollection of something all but forgotten which the new words suggested, and then, to her own astonishment as well as to that of her teacher, she had used other French words than those in the lessons, used them properly, and with a pronunciation that the Englishwoman knew was more perfect than her own. But Miriam could neither read nor write what she spoke so well and as my dear considered a knowledge of correct English of the first importance, other than conversational French was postponed for a later day. "'You doubtless heard French spoken at times in your father's douar,' suggested my dear as the most reasonable explanation. Miriam shook her head. "'It may be,' she said, "'but I do not recall ever having seen a Frenchman in my father's company. He hated them, and would have nothing whatever to do with them, and I am quite sure that I never heard any of these words before. Yet at the same time I find them all familiar. I cannot understand it. Neither can I, agreed my dear. It was about this time that a runner brought a letter that, when she learned the contents, filled Miriam with excitement. Visitors were coming. A number of English ladies and gentlemen had accepted my dear's invitation to spend a month of hunting and exploring with them. Miriam was all expectancy. What would these strangers be like? Would they be as nice to her as had Buana and my dear, 
or would they be like the other white folks she had known, cruel and relentless? My dear assured her that they all were gentlefolk, and that she would find them kind, considerate, and honorable. To my dear's surprise there was none of the shyness of the wild creature in Miriam's anticipation of the visit of the strangers. She looked forward to their coming with curiosity, and with a certain pleasurable anticipation, when once she was assured that they would not bite her. In fact, she appeared no different than would any pretty young miss who had learned of the expected coming of company. Korak's image was still often in her thoughts, but it aroused now a less well-defined sense of bereavement. A quiet sadness pervaded Miriam when she thought of him, but the poignant grief of her loss when it was young no longer goaded her to desperation. Yet she was still loyal to him. She still hoped that some day he would find her, nor did she doubt for a moment but that he was searching for her if he still lived. It was this last suggestion that caused her the greatest perturbation. Korak might be dead. It scarce seemed possible that one so well equipped to meet the emergencies of jungle life should have succumbed so young. Yet when she had last seen him he had been beset by a horde of armed warriors, and should he have returned to the village again, as she well knew he must have, he may have been killed. Even her Korak could not single-handed slay an entire tribe. At last the visitors arrived. There were three men and two women, the wives of the two older men. The youngest member of the party was Honorable Morrison Baines, a young man of considerable wealth, who, having exhausted all the possibilities for pleasure offered by the capitals of Europe, had gladly seized upon this opportunity to turn to another continent for excitement and adventure. He looked upon all things un-European as rather more than less impossible. Still he was not at all averse to enjoying the novelty of unaccustomed places, and making the most of strangers indigenous thereto, however unspeakable they might have seemed to him at home. In manner he was suave and courteous to all, if possible a trifle more punctilious toward those he considered of meaner clay than toward the few he mentally admitted to equality. Nature had favored him with a splendid physique and a handsome face, and also with sufficient good judgment to appreciate that while he might enjoy the contemplation of his superiority to the masses, there was little likelihood of the masses being equally entranced by the same cause and so he easily maintained the reputation of being a most democratic and likable fellow, and indeed he was likable. Just a shade of his egotism was occasionally apparent, never sufficient to become a burden to his associates. And this briefly was the Honorable Morrison Baines of luxurious European civilization. What would be the Honorable Morrison Baines of Central Africa, it were difficult to guess. Miriam at first was shy and reserved in the presence of the strangers. Her benefactors had seen fit to ignore mention of her strange past, and so she passed as their ward, whose antecedents not having been mentioned were not to be inquired into. The guests found her sweet and unassuming, laughing, vivacious, and a never-exhausted storehouse of quaint and interesting jungle lore. She had ridden much during her year with Buona and my dear, 
She knew each favorite clump of concealing reeds along the river that the buffalo loved best. She knew a dozen places where lions laired, and every drinking hole in the drier country twenty-five miles back from the river. With unerring precision that was almost uncanny, she could track the largest or the smallest beast to his hiding place. But the thing that baffled them all was her instant consciousness of the presence of carnivora that others, exerting their faculties to the utmost, could neither see nor hear. The Honorable Morrison Baines found Miriam a most beautiful and charming companion. He was delighted with her from the first, particularly so, it is possible, because he had not thought to find companionship of this sort upon the African estate of his London friends. They were together a great deal, as they were the only unmarried couple in the little company. Miriam, entirely unaccustomed to the companionship of such as Baines, was fascinated by him. His tales of the great, gay cities with which he was familiar filled her with admiration and with wonder. If the Honorable Morrison always shone to advantage in these narratives, Miriam saw in that fact but a most natural consequence to his presence upon the scene of his story. Wherever Morrison might be, he must be a hero, so thought the girl. With the actual presence and companionship of the young Englishman, the image of Korak became less real. Where before it had been an actuality to her, she now realized that Korak was but a memory. To that memory she still was loyal, but what weight has a memory in the presence of a fascinating reality? Miriam had never accompanied the men upon a hunt since the arrival of the guests. She never had cared particularly for the sport of killing. The tracking she enjoyed, but the mere killing for the sake of killing she could not find pleasure in, little savage that she had been, and still, to some measure, was. When Buana had gone forth to shoot for meat, she had always been his enthusiastic companion, but with the coming of the London guests the hunting had deteriorated into mere killing. Slaughter the host would not permit, yet the purpose of the hunts were for heads and skins, and not for food. So Miriam remained behind and spent her days either with my dear upon the shaded veranda, or riding her favorite pony across the plains or to the forest edge. Here she would leave him untethered while she took to the trees for the moment's unalloyed pleasures of a return to the wild, free existence of her earlier childhood. Then would come again visions of Korak, and tired at last of leaping and swinging through the trees, she would stretch herself comfortably upon a branch and dream, and presently, as today, she found the features of Korak slowly dissolve and merge into those of another, and the figure of a tanned, half-naked Tarmangani became a khaki-clothed Englishman astride a hunting pony. And while she dreamed, there came to her ears from a distance, faintly, the terrified bleating of a kid. Miriam was instantly alert. You or I, even had we been able to hear the pitiful wail at so great distance, could not have interpreted it. But to Miriam it meant a species of terror that afflicts the ruminant when a carnivore is near and escape impossible. It had been both a pleasure and a sport of Korak's to rob Numa of his prey whenever possible, and Miriam too had often enjoyed in the thrill of snatching some dainty morsel almost from the very jaws of the king of beasts. Now, at the sound of the kid's bleat, all the well-remembered thrills recurred. 
Instantly she was all excitement to play again the game of hide-and-seek with death. Quickly she loosened her riding skirt and tossed it aside. It was a heavy handicap to successful travel in the trees. Her boots and stockings followed the skirt, for the bare sole of the human foot does not slip upon dry or even wet bark, as does the hard leather of a boot. She would have liked to discard her riding breeches also, but the motherly admonitions of my dear had convinced Miriam that it was not good form to go naked through the world. At her hip hung a hunting knife. Her rifle was still in its boot, at her pony's withers, her revolver she had not brought. The kid was still bleating as Miriam started rapidly in its direction, which she knew was straight toward a certain water-hole which had once been famous as a rendezvous for lions. Of late there had been no evidence of carnivora in the neighborhood of this drinking place, but Miriam was positive that the bleating of the kid was due to the presence of either lion or panther. But she would soon know, for she was rapidly approaching the terrified animal. She wondered, as she hastened onward, that the sounds continued to come from the same point. Why did the kid not run away? And then she came in sight of the little animal and knew. The kid was tethered to a stake beside the water-hole. Miriam paused in the branches of a nearby tree and scanned the surrounding clearing with quick, penetrating eyes. Where was the hunter? Buana and his people did not hunt thus. Who could have tethered this poor little beast as a lure to Numa? Buana never countenanced such acts in his country, and his word was law among those who hunted within radius of many miles of his estate. Some wandering savages, doubtless, thought Miriam, but where were they? Not even her keen eyes could discover them. And where was Numa? Why had he not long since sprung upon this delicious and defenseless morsel? That he was close by was attested by the pitiful crying of the kid. Ah, now she saw him. He was lying close in a clump of brush a few yards to her right. The kid was downwind from him, and getting the full benefit of his terrorizing scent which did not reach Miriam. To circle to the opposite side of the clearing where the trees approached closer to the kid, to leap quickly to the little animal's side and cut the tether that held him would be the work of but a moment. In that moment Numa might charge, and then there would be scarce time to regain the safety of the trees. Yet it might be done. Miriam had escaped from closer quarters than that many times before. The doubt that gave her momentary pause was caused by fear of the unseen hunters more than by fear of Numa. If they were stranger blacks, the spears that they held in readiness for Numa might as readily be loosed upon whomever dared release their bait as upon the prey they sought thus to trap. Again the kid struggled to be free. Again his piteous wail touched the tender heart-strings of the girl. Tossing discretion aside, she commenced to circle the clearing. Only from Numa did she attempt to conceal her presence. At last she reached the opposite trees. An instant she paused to look toward the great lion, and at the same moment she saw the huge beast rise slowly to his full height. A low roar betokened that he was ready. Miriam loosened her knife and leaped to the ground. A quick run brought her to the side of the kid. Numa saw her. He lashed his tail against his tawny sides. He roared terribly, but for an instant he remained where he stood, surprised into inaction, doubtless, by the strange apparition that had sprung so unexpectedly from the jungle. 
Other eyes were upon Miriam, too, eyes in which were no less surprised than that reflected in the yellow-green orbs of the carnivore. A white man hiding in a thorn boma half rose as the young girl leaped into the clearing and dashed toward the kid. He saw Numa hesitate. He raised his rifle and covered the beast's breast. The girl reached the kid's side. Her knife flashed, and the little prisoner was free. With a parting bleat it dashed off into the jungle. Then the girl turned to retreat toward the safety of the tree from which she had dropped so suddenly and unexpectedly into the surprised view of the lion, the kid, and the man. As she turned, the girl's face was turned toward the hunter. His eyes went wide as he saw her features. He gave a little gasp of surprise. But now the lion demanded all his attention. The baffled, angry beast was charging. His breast was still covered by the motionless rifle. The man could have fired and stopped the charge at once, but for some reason, since he had seen the girl's face, he hesitated. Could it be that he did not care to save her, or did he prefer, if possible, to remain unseen by her? It must have been the latter cause which kept the trigger finger of the steady hand from exerting the little pressure that would have brought the great beast to at least a temporary pause. Like an eagle, the man watched the race for life the girl was making. A second or two measured the time which the whole exciting event consumed from the moment that the lion broke into his charge. Nor once did the rifle sights fail to cover the broad breast of the tawny sire as the lion's course took him a little to the man's left. Once, at the very last moment, when escape seemed impossible, the hunter's finger tightened ever so little upon the trigger, but almost coincidentally the girl leaped for an overhanging branch and seized it, the lion leaped too, but the nimble Merriam had swung herself beyond his reach without a second or an inch to spare. The man breathed a sigh of relief as he lowered his rifle. He saw the girl fling a grimace at the angry, roaring man-eater beneath her, and then laughing speed away into the forest. For an hour the lion remained about the water-hole. A hundred times could the hunter have bagged his prey. Why did he fail to do so? Was he afraid that the shot might attract the girl and cause her to return? At last Numa, still roaring angrily, strode majestically into the jungle. The hunter crawled from his boma, and half an hour later was entering a little camp snugly hidden in the forest. A handful of black followers greeted his return with sullen indifference. He was a great bearded man, a huge yellow-bearded giant, when he entered his tent. Half an hour later he emerged smooth-shaven. His blacks looked at him in astonishment. "'Would you know me?' he asked. "'The hyena that bore you would not know you, Buana,' replied one. The man aimed a heavy fist at the black's face, but long experience in dodging similar blows saved the presumptuous one. End of chapter 16